Well, uh, let me encourage you at this time to uh, take out a copy of God's Word and to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our sermon series going through the Sermon on the Mount, Christian Counterculture. And uh, over the next few Sundays, we're going to conclude the Sermon on the Mount as we look at the two choices that Jesus presents to us in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in verse 13, here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit... You will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Thank you, Pastor Drew, for reading these words that are kind of wrapping up the greatest sermon ever preached. In this sermon, Jesus identified the character of his followers in the Beatitudes. He set the standard for behavior of his followers by clarifying and giving us the meaning of certain portions of the law that people misunderstood. He reminded us and told us not to worry, not to judge, told us to ask him if we need anything, and then he concluded by offering us this choice, the narrow gate or the wide gate. Now, this passage is fairly straightforward to understand. These illustrations are very simple. 
Um, the narrow gate leads to life. The gate is narrow because it represents one way to that life. The wide gate leads to destruction. And anyone who is on that path is headed to hell. So that's simply the uh, interpretation of, uh, of this conclusion to Jesus' message. And I think I can just go ahead and stop there. I could, but I, I won't because there's more to say about it. It's fact, in fact, not the first time Jesus has used this illustration of the gate. Um, he said this in John chapter 10, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs over in some other way is a thief and a robber. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who, um, whoever came before me were thieves and robbers. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So it's pretty clear in this passage that Jesus is using this metaphor, this illustration of the gate, that he's talking about himself. The idea that Jesus Christ and the Christian faith is the only way to heaven is a major tenet of the Christian faith. Understanding Jesus Christ, his life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead that gives us hope for eternal life, and he offers salvation to the entire world is a message that is far from acceptable to those who believe that there are many roads that lead to God. In fact, the spirit of the age actually stands against the proclamation of the gospel, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. This is what is called relativistic thinking, or pluralistic thinking. And it's not the first time that we've come across this kind of thinking. In fact, maybe some of you have heard of the Greek philosopher Protagoras. He actually lived 500 years before Christ, and he philosophized in his book entitled Truth something about pluralistic view of religion and a relativistic view of truth. In fact, the very opening line of his book is probably something that you would recognize. You've probably heard it over and over again. Man is the measure of all things. Have you heard that statement before? Man is the measure of all things. That first line in Protagoras's book actually went like this. Man is the measure of all things of things that are, that they are, and of things that are not, that they are not. In other words, there's uh, your truth and there's my truth. You heard that before? Oprah Winfrey, in her speech at the 2018 Golden Globe Awards, said this. What I know for sure is speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we have. 
I've seen that over and over again played, uh, at least on my Facebook feed, and you've probably seen it too. And that's a very popular concept, that there is no such thing, but there is no such thing as your truth and my truth, there is only the truth. A missionary acquaintance of mine was uh, attending a conference uh, in Delhi, India, at a university. And as he walked up to the, the desk to uh, register for this conference, he noticed that there were various pictures of Jesus on this woman's desk. And so he just asked, oh, are, are you a follower of Jesus? And she said, oh, yes, I am. He's one of my favorite. One of my favorites. Now, that fits well in the Eastern mindset, in Hinduistic thinking, where there are 300 million gods. In fact, many Hindus can't possibly worship 300 million gods, so that's, this is what they do. They choose their favorites. And they set up little temples in their, their yard. You know that we have uh, churches in Guyana, and there are quite a few Hindus in Guyana. You'll drive down the road, and you'll see these little temples, these little altars set up in people's yards along with little flags that are waving in the breeze. And those flags represent the prayers of uh, the occupants of those homes, and they are praying to the various gods that are their favorite. Pluralistic thinking and relativistic thinking, I think, is the greatest theological challenge that the church is faced with in North America. And let me tell you why. Recently, U.S. World and uh, U.S. News and World Report conducted a survey among people who identified themselves as Christians, all right? So these are all going to be people that say, yes, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. And they asked this question, which of the following statements comes closer to your own view? Now, surveyors come up with, you know, unique ways of phrasing questions to, to make you think. And, and the statements that I'm about to read, you might not really like the way they're phrased, either one of them, but that's on purpose. So it gets you to choose which one matches how you think the best, okay? So th this is, these are the questions. The religion you practice is the only true religion. Or, all religions have elements of the truth. Now, you might not like the way either one of those questions is phrased, but let me ask you that question. Um, the religion you practice is the only true religion, or all religions have some elements of the truth? How are you going to answer that question? You don't have to answer it out loud. Well, a survey of churches, people who claim to be followers of Christ in America, 19% said that the religion they practice is the only true religion. 77% said that all religions have some elements of the truth. If that's the case, if that is the actual belief of, the, uh, of most people in our pews, then they are holding to a relativistic view of the truth, and they are also holding to a pluralistic view of religion. And they are not on 
the narrow path. They are on the wide path. Now, after I had prepared this message, I actually uh, got some other survey data that was just released. And I mean, by just released, I mean on Tuesday. It was just released by George Barna and the Cultural Research, uh, Resource Center at the uh, Arizona Christian University. So George Barna, you, sh you should look it up. Uh, I mean, he's got all kinds of data about the church in America, Christians in America, and this is what he says, that um, in the U.S. today, 69% of the population self-identify as Christian. And you might think, oh, that, that's okay, that's pretty good. It's not. It's not really good at all. Because just 20 years ago, it was 85% of our population identified as being followers of Jesus Christ. And actually, it gets worse as it goes on. Because he said, uh, he, he boiled down all of the data that he received. And he said, actually, among those who self-identify as followers of Christ, only 6% of those in the survey actually have biblical views, which is a little scary. These are some of the results of this survey. 77% said that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. It's very similar to the U.S. News and World Report. 69% uh, said that they accepted feelings, experience, and the input of friends and family as their most trusted source for moral guidance. 65% said there is no absolute moral truth. 61% said that all religious faiths are equal. 60% said that, uh, uh, that uh, believe that if a person is good enough or does good enough things, they can earn their way to heaven. That what, I'm just, what I just read to you is the common belief of most people that identify themselves as Christians in the United States. Does that concern you at all? Because it really concerns me. What that means is that religious pluralism is the solution of choice among most people sitting in our pews in North America. Now, I have much higher aspirations for all of you that are sitting in this congregation because I know for a fact that the Word of God is preached from this pulpit, it's taught in our Sunday school classes and in our ABFs, and we do not teach a pluralistic view of religion. We teach that Jesus Christ is the one and only way to heaven. Amen? But it is our greatest theological challenge if the vast majority of people that you rub shoulders with uh, at your workplace or at school, who if you ask the question, are you a Christian, will say yes, they might have actually a pluralistic view of religion. Now, how did that happen? I just happen to be interested in this, so please bear with me when I tell you how did this happen. Um, Back in 1893, in the city of Chicago, was the World's Fair. You might have heard about that. And at the World's Fair was the very first Parliament of World Religions. And they invited as their keynote speaker, Swami Vivekananda, 
from India, who was the founder of the Ramakrishna movement way back in the 1800s. And he came and he brought a message of pluralism to America. This is what he said. As the streams having their source in different places all mingle their waters in the sea, so the different paths which men take, though through different tendencies, various though they may appear, crooked or straight, all lead to God. That was broadcast in the newspapers. In fact, the New York Herald, which was the, pre, the, the forerunner of the New York Times newspaper, wrote this about Vivekananda. They said, Vivekananda is undoubtedly the greatest figure in the parliament of religions. After hearing him, we feel how foolish it is to send missionaries to this learned nation. And so if I were to pinpoint a, a point in time when, when our thinking began to shift towards more of an Eastern perspective on things, more of a pluralistic view of religion, I would have to say this was the time, 1893, in Chicago. And we have slowly moved in our thinking as a, a nation from the view of respecting other beliefs and um, accommodating other positions without holding them to coming to a place where we um, that every single individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and truth claims are equally valid. How many times have you heard that? Many, many times, repeated over and over again, because that is the view in our country today. It is not, however, a biblical view. Believe it or not, a hundred years later, after 1893, in 1993, there was another parliament of world religions in the city of Chicago at McCormick Place. I didn't have the chance to attend it. Don and I were in Indonesia at the time. Um, but I do know somebody who attended the Parliament of World Religions in 1993, Erwin Lutzer. And he wrote a book about his experience, Jesus Among Other Gods. And if this interests you, I would pick up that book and read it. Because those that gathered for the uh, Parliament of World Religions in 1993 put the nail in the coffin on pluralism by making these statements. The doctrines of different faiths should not be held as truths, but as part of the truth contained in all religion. No religion should be thought of as superior to another. A belief in religious superiority is a major roadblock to unity. We can retain our own particular religion, but we must move beyond it to deeper levels of experience as we move from religion to true spirituality, and then we are united. And then kind of a postscript. By the way, proselytizing is bigotry. Winning converts is based on the antiquated notion that one religion has more to offer than another. Our task is to help others discover the hidden inner meaning of their own religion rather than convert others to our own. Have I given you enough evidence of the pluralistic view of religion that we are bombarded with day after day? No, you say? Okay, I'll give you more. 
Um, in, in just a few more days, we are going to be commemorating the, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attack on the United States and the destruction of the ten, Twin Towers in New York City. I don't know if you can recall 20 years ago, but our nation came together as a result of that tragedy. And this was televised not only in the United States, but around the world in the um, National Cathedral. And a prayer was offered on behalf of our nation in to, rather, the God of Abraham, the God of Muhammad, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we all pray to the same God. Is that true? Do we all pray to the same God? Are all religions really the same? Maybe we should actually be be on the wide road going through the wide path if all religions lead to God. When Donna and I lived in Indonesia, I had the opportunity of talking with um, several imams, various occasions. Um, Some of those times were good and some of those weren't so good. Uh, I had one imam that said, I I am so attracted to Jesus and his message. But he just couldn't come to faith because of all the things that would happen to him. That's actually how we ended the conversation. Another imam uh, that I had a chance to talk to uh, was trying to be uh, reconciling and saying, you know, Um, Abraham is really our father, our father in Islam and your father in Christianity. And uh, we both pray to the God of Abraham. So we both pray to the same God. And I said to him, well, I pray to Jesus and I believe that he is God. Is that what you believe also? He said, no, 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 that's not, no. I said, well, then we don't pray to the same God. And if, you're in, if you encounter people with a pluralistic view of religion that maybe say something like that, well, you know, all paths lead to, to heaven and we really all pray to the same God, you can just simply ask a few questions. The first question would be, how many gods exist? Now, if you were talking to a Buddhist, they would say, none because Buddhism is really an atheistic religion. Siddhartha Gautama never claimed to be God. He isn't God. None of the bodhisattvas are God. There is no God in Buddhism. If you were to ask a Hindu how many gods there are, what would they say? What did I say before? 300 million. 300 million gods. If you were to ask someone of uh, the Islamic faith how many gods there are, they would say one. How many gods are there? And what is the nature of God? As described in the Word of God, God is triune. One personality in three persons. That's a different view of who God is. If we were to ask people from Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam, and Christianity, what is the main problem that human beings have? A Buddhist would say it has to do with uh, suffering and desire. 
A Hindu would say it has to do with the issue of karma and samsara. A Muslim would say it has to do with the issue of takdir and iktar, or fate and effort. What would we say? Biggest problem that human beings have. Our separation from God because of our sin. Now, we could actually go on and on. We could drill down into many more questions and find out actually those that think that all religions lead to the same pathway, all religions lead to the same ending, and we all pray to the same God, it's not true. It's not the case. So what are we to do? How are we to respond to those that really have vastly different views, in fact, very contradictory views? What is the right way? What is the truth? And where can we find life? Maybe we should ask Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because Sarah Michelle Geller, in an interview years ago, said this, I consider myself a spiritual person. I believe in an idea of God, although it's my own personal ideal, I find, my, I find most religions interesting, and I've been to every kind of denomination, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist. I've taken bits from everything and customized it. Now, how popular is that view today? Do you think Michelle, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller would get a lot of head nods? Oh, yeah, that, that really sounds interesting. Sounds like a good way. Do you think you'd get a lot of head nodding today? Now, not, not from you. I'm not seeing any head nodding here, uh, which is good. I'm glad nobody's nodding their heads. Uh, but I think those people that you rub shoulders with would be saying, oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe I should, should pull some truths from other religious practices. The uniqueness of Christianity is not found in a holy book, although we do have one. It's not found in a systematic theology. It's not found in a political structure. It's not found in a high moral code. It's not found in a long history, and it's not found in a distinct ritual of worship. Every religion has that. The uniqueness of Christianity is based on a portrait of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. And Jesus claimed to be God. Did Jesus claim to be a way to God among many equal valid choices? Did Jesus claim to be a part of the truth found in all religions? Did Jesus claim to be, uh, to provide uh, eternal life as one expression of spiritual existence among other expressions of spiritual existence? No. What did Jesus say? Could you say that a little louder, please? For those of you that are watching at home that couldn't pick that up, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is biblical Christianity. There is only one way, not multiple ways. We pray to one God, not different expressions of who God is. 
I love the way that Jesus' disciple John puts it. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life, and that life was the light of all men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is God. The Bible says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. When Jesus was confounding some of the religious leaders of the day and kind of making them upset, they said to him, well, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Abraham? And he said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. You know why? Because he, said, he was saying, I am God. When he was being questioned by the Sanhedrin, I charge you under oath, under the, li- the oath of a, the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did he say? Yes, it's as you have said, the Son of the living God. And all of these claims were validated by his resurrection. So what must we do? How can we respond to people that, are on, that have gone through the wide gate and are on the wide road that leads to destruction? Many times when I've talked to people who are on that wide road, they are burdened with the burdens of other religions, the aesthetic practices that must be done, the perfection that must be reached in order to have any access, any hope of access to God. And those burdens are heavy. And so the verse that that I read or talk about most often when I'm when I'm talking to people that are burdened with all of these ways to God and all the things that they must do, come to me, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What's the alternative for people that um, have gone through the wide gate and are on the wide road? And I hate to say this, but that includes many people who would say, Yes, I'm a Christian. What's the, what's the alternative? These are some of the most uh, terrifying verses in Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, 
Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Who are those people? Those are the people that have gone through the wide gate and are on the wide path. And you probably know some of them. So what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, this is so convicting on so many levels. There is no question that this is the greatest sermon ever preached. These illustrations that, that you use to conclude this message are so powerful. And unfortunately, Lord, we know people that have gone through this wide gate that leads to destruction. I pray, Lord, that you would give us an opportunity, perhaps this week even, to have a spiritual conversation with somebody that's on this pathway that leads to destruction. And let them know how much you love them. Let them know that uh, you have, have asked them to come to you with their burdens. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.